Hi everyone. A note before we begin. This episode includes mention of molestation by the Catholic Church and suicidal thoughts. A reminder that if you need help, anyone in suicidal crisis or emotional distress can dial 988 on their phone to connect to a crisis counselor. Now, this week's episode. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by John Casey. John is a senior editor at The Advocate, the world's oldest and largest LGBTQ news outlet. John is in his late 50s. He spent much of his career in public relations, first on Capitol Hill, then for big companies like Toys R Us and Nielsen. He's in his first year as senior editor after previously writing for The Advocate since 2019. Hi, John. Hey, Mark. Nice to be talking with you today. Thanks for having me. So what is your journalism origin story? It all started in, I guess, 2019 after the Pennsylvania grand jury came out with a list of priests who were accused of sexual molestation on youth. And one of those priests happened to be the one who, who uh, tried to groom and, and attack me. So I wrote a column for the advocate about my experience with this priest, right on the heels of that, having been in PR, I knew it would be newsworthy, and they ran it. And so I started submitting more columns, more opinion pieces, and the editor, Neil Broberman, he's now our editor-in-chief of all of our titles, but he started working with me and telling me this, that one won't work. And so I guess he saw something in me, and it got to the point where I started submitting about two columns every week. And I did that as a sort of a side job uh, in my other corporate jobs that I had. So that was, it began with t- telling my story about, a, a, you know, a, a priest making moves on me. Wow. Looking at kind of your family, your heritage and things of that sort, is there anything within that that lent itself to telling stories? Well, my grandfather was a character, and I was my best friend. For, I, he died when I was 42, 43, so I had him a long time. But he told, his own, his, he told stories in his own way, using words you've never heard of before. And he never met a stranger, and he never met anybody that he didn't tell a story to. So I guess that's where it might come from. So inherited traits combined with public relations combined with personal circumstance, takes you to the the place that you are. And I want to focus, obviously, on the writing of the last few years, but I did want to touch on the PR aspect a little bit, because there are certainly plenty of people that make the, the move from PR to journalism or vice versa. What were the some of the biggest lessons that you learned? And, and start with from having worked on Capitol Hill. Well, I got one day I was in the district office. I had interned for the congressman, and then he hired me when I graduated from college. And I worked in the district office back in Washington, Pennsylvania. And one Thursday night around 8.30, I think we were watching the Cosby show with my parents, he called. And I, my mom ran in and said, the congressman. So I get on the phone, and he said, do you still want to be my press secretary? And I'm 23, and I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, Bob, who was our press secretary, 
pass out on his car today. You won't do something like that if you're the press secretary, will you? And I said, no, no. He said, well, then get your ass to Washington by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So I packed the bag and went. And I had never been press secretary or dealt with the media, but he was being reprimanded by the U.S. House of Representatives. He was the first member in 10 years uh, to be reprimanded. So he was undergoing all this, and I literally got thrown into a 40-foot-deep pool and trying to combat all the negative stories. Yeah. So that's how it started. So the, the lesson was all in crisis communication, because after that, he had a child out of wedlock that was exposed during the next campaign, and then he was under a federal grand jury investigation. And if you've never been subpoenaed to testify in front of a federal grand jury, you ain't missing anything. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that was extremely an extremely eventful set of things that happened there. And as you said, crisis oh, yeah. communication, certainly. So yeah, it, it's fair to say at your age, with everything kind of all thrown together, you've seen done a lot. What was the biggest lesson from working for Havis? So that was, everything's a story. I'm sorry, like my grandfather. But I was consulting with Havas, and the CEO called me and said, we have our biggest RFP in history. It's a $5 million project, two, two and a half year project for the United Nations Foundation. Can you write it? It's about climate change. So I wrote it. We got into the final three. We were the little, little uh, David with the Goliath of uh, Edelman and Weber Shanwick. And she said, if you lead the pitch and we win it, you, come, you have to come run the account. And we won it. And so I was a little different in the agency. And then I was pretty much embedded into the, to the United Nations Foundation. And we worked in support of the Nobel Prize winning United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Wow, okay, and what was the biggest lesson that you got from doing that? Um, climate change, learned. My job, our job was to media train. There's 800 scientists who uh, work for the UN IPCC, and our job was to media train them and, and make, their, uh, make the science more relevant, consumerize it more or less. And so when I was chosen to lead this team, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with the biggest climate communicators in the world, what Al Gore and the Obama administration and uh, uh, Kofi Annan, it was the UN Secretary General, and, and they were all emailing like, why is the Toys R Us guy leading this account? Well, <laughs> we've won more awards than any climate environment program that has ever been up for an award in the PR industry. And so it was a gratifying experience. But learned so much about climate change and now it's kind of a you know personal passion sure and certainly very newsworthy just about every day and you mentioned toys r us what was the biggest lesson you learned in working in corporate pr for them the toy industry is a war there cutthroat it was uh, it was crazy we i was there during the time again crisis communications again when we had all these toy recalls but the biggest lesson out of that was that yes, we addressed it. We never wavered on the decision we made about what we were going to do. And at the same time, on a separate track, kept pushing our positive messages out there. So I think it, was, it worked successfully because the, the company during that period actually showed profit versus loss despite all the toy recalls. So decisiveness, climate, 
climate change and crisis communication. Those are the, the three of the three things that I brought up. And there's all these other things that you've done too that we're not even going to get into because we'd be here forever. Uh, yeah, you, you know what I was just thinking, Mom? I talk all that time and, and you summed it up in one sentence. I think you should work with me and, and uh, call down my messages a little bit. You'd be a big help. <laughs> I've learned it's, it's become a specialty in my job. So um, you do a lot of big stories. Uh, you've talked to Nancy Pelosi, John Fetterman, Jamie Raskin, Letitia James, Shirley MacLaine, Neil Patrick Harris, celebrities, politicians, big names, big events. How do you come up with your story ideas and how do you find ways to interview these people in ways that they haven't been interviewed before? Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, I follow the news, sort of a news junkie, and I read everything. So one of the goals that I had and when I started really diving into the column was to bring in allies, more allies and more straight people versus always being LGBTQ people. I mean, if you go to our competitor sites, they, they're always interviewing, you know, LGBTQ people. And the reason like uh, the HuffPost LGBT section and the BuzzFeed one didn't work is because, you know, they were taking the same names and interviewing them and they weren't. So it's kind of creating a space where straight people could come in and, and talk to our community about what they've done. And, you know, for Shirley MacLaine example, I mean, years ago, you'd read about all the uh, reincarnation stuff. And, but one of her, one of her main points was that there shouldn't be two sexual identities. There should be more than that. Why are we just stuck to two? And she said that years ago, and now we look today where that is really you know, a vibrant subject and discussion. So that's how I went after her. And I spent 90 minutes on the phone with her and I had more fun. We, she gets to talk about telling stories. She was terrific. <laughs> Seeing with celebrities, sometimes you write about personal experience and this was a year and a half ago, but what was it like to write about the death of Betty White? Cause that one was personal. Yeah, so I do a lot of obituaries. Uh, for, like I did one for the Queen, who I followed pretty closely, and Regis Philbin is another one. Um, I love Regis Philbin. He's, you know, so when I write about these, they have to be personal. I met Betty White twice in my life, <clears throat> so it was personal for me. And that's usually how I like to start a column: is try to to make it personal before I dive into it. So for Betty, yeah, yeah, I met her twice. Um, I saw the Queen once in person, but for Betty, I met her, and she was, uh, you know, just such a such a bright light, such a spark to her. So, take, segueing from celebrities to politicians, and again, you get all these great gets. When you interviewed Nancy Pelosi, were you expecting her to call Republicans losers? And how did you react to that when uh she did? I was not surprised. She tells it like it is. And so I'm hard of hearing. So we had a, a little green room off the stage at Lincoln Center. She was speaking at the Time 100 conference. So there was a small couch in the room and I, I literally crawled on her lap and I said, I can't hear. So I have to sit right next to you so I don't miss anything. And so she kept grabbing my arm and pulling me in and, and, and really... She, she doesn't suffer fools. And so when she called them losers, you know, she got right down to what they were, at least in my opinion. So you have a lot of experience in PR. This is upwards of 
30 years from what I can tell. And you're getting all these amazing interviews. And I imagine that a lot of them, they want to, they're looking to speak to the advocate because the advocate is so well known. But are there any interesting stories about how you go about landing your guests? Well, like for Ellen, Ellen doesn't talk to the media, Ellen DeGeneres. And so when her show was going off the air, so I started about a, about a year before that, I wanted to talk to her. And then I got to know her, um, her producer, Andy, who, Andy Lasser. He's been a producer, for, executive producer for 19 years. And so he and I just developed a friendship. And so when it got close to the, when the, it wasn't close, about three or four months before when the end of the show was coming, you know, I started the process of working my way in and, and they told me she did not want to do an interview. She wasn't going to do any interview. She just wanted to go all quietly. So I just hung in there. I, you know, used my skills of pitching to always find clever ways to follow up and help Andy help me. And so I got to talk to her. And, you know, when she got on the phone with me, she talked to People Magazine and she talked to the Associated Press and, and with me. And those interviews were very short. So when she got on the phone with me, you know, she, I think she planned just the 10 minutes of the allotted time. And we were on the phone for maybe 45 minutes. And we had a really, really personal call. And so when I hung up, I, I told her, I said, I love you, Ellen. Well, I love you too, John. And so I think that one was a big surprise in the fact that, you know, I could tell at the beginning that she was tilted in her answers, but as we worked our way through, and I don't really like the interview, I just kind of like to talk to people. And we, we really had, and, it, and the, uh, the column turned out great. It was how really make, meaningful. How do you make people feel more comfortable with you? So, you know, you kind of said it, 30 years in PR, I never specialized in one thing. I've worked in, on television shows and movies and climate change and toys. American Express, Capitol Hill. So, you know, I always, I always try to draw in a, a personal experience or a common circle that would, that would relate to us. You know, it's easy with, like with, with John Fetterman, for example, I've talked to him twice and, uh, and once right after he was elected and you know, we had to do it through a special way, but we are avid Pittsburgh Steeler fans. So I knew that about him when I first talked to him. And so we spent the first part of the call talking about the Steelers. Nice. So on a lot of the issues that you're writing about, you're calling out Anderson Cooper about the his comments about the Trump town hall, Leslie Stahl about her interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene, other things that I read. There's a clear cut position for you to take where you're essentially preaching to an audience that believes it and eagerly takes it in. What's an example of something that you've written for The Advocate where you took an unexpected stance or a stance that may have gotten some considerable disagreement? Well, there one that really stands out, and it was last year, and pink washing or rainbow washing, last Pride, was was the topic. A lot of, and it was mostly the younger generation, is that they go after corporations who just dive in in June and do a partnership, do a donation, and then they go away. And so. You know, as an older guy, I was like, well, actually, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, they did, nobody paid attention to it. And now we have all this love. I'm 
call it rainbow washing, call it pink washing. It, to me, I'm grateful that, that they take the time to do that. And I got a lot of things that, you know, you sound like a bitter old queen and fine. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. But they, mostly from the younger generation sort of piled on and said, you know, it's not right. They need to do more. And now that I'm on the other side, I can't tell you how many pitches that I've received about pride. And some of them are, I'll give you one quick example. There is, and I won't tell you where, I think it's in Ohio, was a beauty salon, a spa, and they were offering 25% off if, if you were LGBTQ. So fine, that sounds great, doesn't it? But how do you prove that? And I asked our staff, do we all have our LGBTQ cards that we can go into the spa and show people, look, we're queer, we can get 25% off. So I'm not sure how they're handling that right now. My guess is that everybody is coming in and saying, I'm gay, give me 25% off. That would be... That would be something, and that would be something that would certainly be a lot different from what would have happened years ago. And also, I suppose it depends on the state with regards to that. Is you, You've brought up younger people, and you're, as I said, in your late 50s. Are there, are there disconnects? Are there common grounds between the two that you found in your few years doing this? Oh, yeah. And I'm, I, first of all, I teach. Also on the side, I'm an adjunct professor at a college here in a, a master's media program. So my, my kids keep me so young. And I talked to a bunch of Gen Zers. I talked to Maxwell Frost, who is the Gen Z, first Gen Z in Congress. And I was on the phone with him for a long time and really picked his brain about all these, you know, where, they, where this generation stands, they're much more accepting, much more tolerant. They're much more attuned. They're much more political attuned. They, they come out in droves. They have been for the last few elections in voting. So I love talking to, I actually talked to, to former Congressman Katie Hill, who was thrown out of, she had to resign because she was in a throuple. And, you know, and, and it was just the fact that the older generation doesn't understand what a thruple is. And I've talked to some psychologists. I've done a couple of columns on thruple. And they're not about sex. It's about a relationship. And that's what it was for her. And so I told her, you know, she's so young. She's just 30. If, you know, once the next generation comes through, she, she needs to run for Congress again because people will accept her better. All right. So in the course of this conversation, you've mentioned a number of people. You've mentioned Ellen. We've talked about Nancy Pelosi. We've talked about Betty White. We've talked a lot about a lot of people who I and I think when you meet them, they're probably especially when you're talking to ones that are have shown a great deal of support. They're very much what you expect them to be. Jamie Raskin is probably exactly what you were expecting him to be or something close when you walked in the door and or when you got him in conversation recently. Is there an example of someone that you've interviewed who ha recently who has been different from your expectations? And I'm curious how you handled that. Well, I'll touch on uh, Jamie Raskin for a minute. Again, when I had 10 minutes and we were on the phone a long time. And what, why that was is because, you know, his son tragically committed suicide and he's been very open about that. So I opened up to him about my attempts at suicide and battle with depression. 
And so that was a much more meaningful conversation. And in fact, his press secretary wrote me after the, I published the column and said, he, he hadn't opened up like that to anyone. And it, you know, told me what an amazing job that I did. But I think the one person that I always go back to, this was sort of at the beginning too, was California Supreme Court Justice Marty Jenkins. And when he was appointed as the first LGBTQ person to the California Supreme Court by Governor Newsom. And I thought you know, he, was a, he was a former football player and he was 66 years old. So I, I figured he'd be sort of judicious. We'll use that word. But that ended up being a very personal conversation about him coming out at the age of 60 years old, which was really something. And how having lived with this secret for so long and having told his father right before his father died that he was gay. And we cried. It was a very emotional conversation and one that I'll never forget. All right. You mentioned your personal experience here, and I do I don't want to just gloss past that. We ask journalists typically on this podcast how they manage their mental health and I'm curious what the answer would be for you since you brought it up. So, yeah, I mean, I was on disability for a little over six months in 2015, right after I started working for Mike Bloomberg when he became a UN climate envoy, which came off of the UN project. And I fell into, uh, we've been building up to severe depression and anxiety. So it's been it's been a kind of difficult to shrug here and there. And, and through it all, I've, I've attempted suicide a couple of times. So I've written about it and I've been very open about it. And the response has been overwhelming. And I can say now that I think I'm going to be 59 next week, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I quit drinking a year and a half ago. Not that I was an alcoholic, but I, it, it tended to cloud my thinking. And I drank too much when I did. and I had demons that I had to address. Part of that was being abused by a priest. And part of that was holding and being gay for so long. And so, so much came out during it and losing my father when I was 12 years old. And I never, so it all, all of these things have been dealt with. And it's been, it's been a gratifying experience. I feel very lucky to be where I am right now. What is the process of writing? And not necessarily about that, but just in general, what is it like for you? Oh, so I love to write. I mean, PR can take a backseat any day. I love to write. And what, what for me it is, is I get into a zone and it comes out so fast. Sometimes it's really hard to keep up. So, and I know that a lot of my colleagues are amazed at how fast I can whip up a column. And if I, if I have interest in it, if I'm connected to it personally, and, and I know a lot about many different things, it just, it just flies out. And those are my favorite moments when I come out, out of this tunnel and realize what I have just written. And I'm like, oh my God, I wrote that? Seriously? So sort of like that. That's cool. Is there, is there anything that you would have wished that you had a do-over on? Wow, that's a, that's a good one. No, I don't think so. I think, I think 
I stand behind everything I write. I'd have to, I'd have to think about that one, but I don't, I, nothing comes to mind. What's, what's an example, setting the personal experience stuff aside, what's an example of a piece that you did where it didn't necessarily come that quick, where it was really tough to write? Probably, well, anything that I guess has to deal with like LGBTQ history. I mean, for that, I have to do some research and they're always tougher to write because I want to make it right. You know, I've done some columns about, you know, the advent of our, our trying to get equality and, and our, our gay marriage, marriage equality. So those I've had to go back. And so those, those require stopping coming out of the zone and going on Google and trying to, you know, expel that information in. And so that one, those, those types where I have to do some research are a little tougher. What is, what is working for the advocate like? Oh my God, it's great. I, I'm, again, I'm so grateful to be there and so grateful to work with such amazing talent. And, you know, like, for example, one of my colleagues, Christopher Wiggins, he's our news reporter, but, you know, he spent last week, last weekend with the vice president and he followed her around. She's going to be on the cover of our, our next issue. You know, and, and he actually represented a pool of reporters when she gave the speech at West Point. So the, the, the advocate has come a long way and it's still relevant more than it has ever been. And, you know, you look through the history, we've been around for about 56 years. We've been through the, you know, Stonewall, the fights for equality, don't ask, don't tell. Of course, AIDS and HIV, which we were we were the go-to and here we are again with our, our our community coming under assault in so many state legislative legislatures across the country and people are turning to us again and, and so we've had record number of, of clicks and uh, unique visitors and page views and you know that comes with a grain of salt because of so much of the news we have to report it so so hard but on the other hand we also try to to bring in people like Shirley MacLaine and like other people to be able to, to brighten us up a little bit, tell us that we we're going to do well. What piece are you most proud of? Well, I mean, recently, I guess the Budweiser fiasco with Dylan Mulvaney, the trans person, I mean, that's been everywhere. And the media was not handling it right. You know, they went to the shiny object over here, which was Kid Rock taking a rifle and, and shooting the cans of Budweiser and you know, people dumping their beer out. And, and the, the media was concentrating solely on the right. And the, the, my column was about the fact that it shouldn't be the right that should be offended. It should be the LGBTQ community because Budweiser did not, Bud Light and Anheuser Bush did not come out and condemn the hate. They said nothing about the hate. And then they left the spokesperson who they started working with just, just hanging her out to dry. And so we should be the ones that are boycotting. We should be the ones that are be pissed because who's standing up for all this hate? So I wrote the column and I pitched it out to every major that covered it the wrong way and was not, and, and was not treating Dylan Mulvaney as a human being. They were treating her as an issue. And so I was, 
I'm pleasantly surprised that everyone, CNN, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, New York Times, they all said, thank you for, thank you for doing this. You're right. We need to, and they went back in and they corrected their stories. Or when they wrote in the future, they made sure to highlight the fact that really it was the LGBTQ community who was hurt more than anyone. And there's a lot of that kind of correction going on right now, right? Yeah, they're awful how they're, how they're treating us. And I'll give you an example. NBC News did a story about Tennessee when they passed the, the anti-drag queen bill. So this reporter interviewed a, a transgender drag queen. First of all, conflating the two issues, transgender. So that was a mistake. Then they went to Mothers Against drag queens or whoever, and they went to this woman and they never asked her if she's met a drag queen or if she's been to a drag show or a drag reading hour. Then they interviewed this awful state representative sponsored the bill and he was throwing out lies left and right. And again, never asked him if he met a drag queen or so the, the reporting was so shoddy. It was ridiculous. It was like a commercial for getting rid of drag queens. And it's Sometimes it seems like the biggest outlets are the ones that have the biggest issues with regards to that. Yes, I agree with you. And we've been working in PR for so many years. It's not, when that happens, it's usually that the, the reporter is ill-informed. Some of it is laziness, but it's just the fact, and, and I always tell people, you got to remember, reporters aren't like my age, they're younger. So they don't have the breadth of experience. And so, and and they're under enormous stress with all the other stories they have to write. So if they're not informed about the transgender community or the drag community, it's going to show in their reporting. How do you view your role in today's world as the senior editor and columnist for The Advocate? It's funny. I actually wrote a guest column for PR Week. Last week it was it ran. And it talked about my eclectic career and, and I weaved in, you know, how being gay was sort of treated like a, um, uh, like a scandal. It was just drip, 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 drip. And now being gay is my biggest advantage. And I'm honored and flattered and, and overwhelmed because I'm a voice out there and one of the only ones, really. I mean, no one else is at a, uh, doing this of any of other our competitors. So when I tackle an issue and, you know, I get tens of thousands of hits. It's the most humbling experience. And I try to listen to everyone who has a comment anywhere. And I get, and I listen to it and I'm, I don't get angry or I don't get happy. I take it in in moderation because everyone has a point of view and I have to respect that. Is there an area in which you feel qualified to offer advice to an aspiring journalist? And what would that be? I would say, yeah, because people ask me, you know, it's sort of the same world of PR. How do you be successful? You have to read everything. You have to take as much in as you can and, and soak it in. And if you don't understand something, take a minute, Google it, find out a little bit about it. And, you know, being, I'm still up on pop culture. I'm still up on politics and entertainment and climate change and, and health and all of, because I've had many conversations with Dr. Fauci, but where there was a gap, I 
even at my age, I went and stopped and Googled it and tried to figure out, like Dr. Fauci throws out scientific terms and try to make sure that I knew what he was talking about. So read, 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 and read your faith, read columnists. If you want to write an opinion column or a column, you know, I, I have for years read Frank Rooney, Maureen Dowd, and Charles Blow of the New York Times. And so, and I did one of my first columns with Frank Rooney, which was an honor. So yeah, read. And if you want to write opinion pieces, read columns till it comes out your ear. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do the same for someone else. Can you pick a journalist or journalism organization, maybe one that you're not affiliated with, that you would like to salute for their good work? You know, I would say any of our competitors. I mean, they're out there and they're trying to help spread the word, you know, particularly under this, this environment right now. So I, I, my hat goes off to our competitors. I mean, yeah, sure, we're all buying for the same audience and and everything, but we're all at the same goal. And that's, you know, to, to enlighten our community and, and to be out there advocating for them. All right. My last thing would be, I hope you write a book someday. Oh, so yeah, I did. I've written one. I haven't done anything. I, I started writing it when I was on disability and then went back to it. And yeah, when I wrote, and everybody has told me all my life, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. And so last week when a, a PR week uh, column ran and all my jobs were in there, I heard so many people are like, you gotta write a book. Dude, you gotta write a book. I mean, all of these people were saying that. So yes, I have one. I don't know the first thing about getting a book published. So if anybody is listening to this, please contact me. I'll be happy to work with you. John Casey, we look forward to reading your book. Read, 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 read. We will be reading your book when it comes out. Thank you for joining us and best of luck. Thank you, Mark. It was so much fun to be with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.